Hello and welcome to episode 38 of Booze, Booms and Busts, the podcast where we discuss market events while at the same time quaffing a few beers and rating them. In today's episode, we will be doing our bullish and bearish segment once again. But of course, before we, we get on with that, we need to discuss what beer we're going to have. Uh, Sam and I are both drinking the same beer. We are synchronized for this episode, which will be good. Uh, and I have actually started eating again. So uh, you, know, <laughs> you are listening to somebody who has is, who is, who is actually eaten something prior to drinking alcohol. Uh, instead of the last, I believe, four episodes where you've uh, just been listening to me uh, eat it while drinking <laughs> off an empty stomach for uh, uh, even an ever longer period of time. But Sam, uh, you know, it's great, to, it's great to be back on again. It's great to have eaten before having these beers. How are you getting on this week? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm doing all right. Happy, happy Friday. Friday, everyone. Beer o'clock, whatever you want to determine this part of the evening as. But uh, another week hath gone by. A few more beers to knock back, and um, I guess away we go. I mean, it's it's nice to hear you you you're back on the solids. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> I had you, you sent people won't know this, but but you sent a, 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 an image, a, a WhatsApp image of a uh, receipt from I think it was Five Guys. Was That's it? correct. Yeah, I mean, what a way to come back to the world of food, really. So, how, yep. very exciting. But yeah, look, uh, first beer we're on today uh, is from the Virginia Beer Co. Um, unsurprisingly, located in Williamsburg, Virginia, in the US, um, and it is a. It's called the Double Free Verse, uh, a double dry hopped double India Pale Ale. A lot of doubling going on there, um, much much like the stock market. Um, and this is a this is a 8.6 percent um full full size pint or at least what the americans call a pint 473 mils um yeah so far so good i'll tell you what the first first sip i had of this it tasted like mango i don't know if you got the same thing but that was that was my initial yeah, impression but um certainly fruity so we'll we'll see how we go okay. but yeah yeah, I would definitely agree with the the mango, the mango gist. You really do. I don't know how it is they've managed to conjure that, but yeah, you do no, get some either. kind of taste of mango here. It's quite mm. thick as well. It's almost mm. um, syrupy. It's kind of mm. a juicy, syrupy kind of taste, which isn't actually too bad. Been too bad. Uh, as you say, Five Guys was the first meal. Five <laughs> Guys grilled cheese. Uh, I only it was after a very long period of uh, you know because I was thinking of my first meal for pretty much every day. I did my my beer fast. And I really couldn't decide what it was going to be until maybe about half an hour before I uh, before I went for it. It was a, you, it was a contest sure you went on death guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the first meal, Sam, rather than the last meal. Thank you very much. Um, at the end of the uh, at the end of the fast, do you, do you have a guess as to how much weight I'd lost? Because I, I remember when I asked yeah. you this about midway through, you said you thought like three pounds or something. Yeah, it's like five pounds and you're like closer to two stone. Um, well, you must have, I mean, there must be a law of diminishing returns at some point. I'd, I'd assume a lot of it came early and then slowed down, but I'd have to say it must be then close to three stone. No, no, actually, yeah, not, thankfully not too extreme. Uh, so at the end of, at the end of it all, we was uh, two stone and one pound. Okay. Uh, well, but for cool. one month, for one, one, a one month diet, I, yeah, I think it's pretty, uh, Pretty solid. Lost five inches off my really? waistline as well. Yeah. Mm. 
I mean, it's expensive yeah. too. Because then, you know, if you if you if you'd have kept it up, you would have had to buy a, a whole new wardrobe as well. Yeah, I can't wait to put all the weight back on. I must say. Well, who knows? You might have even walked away with a sponsorship deal from Subway. Although, admittedly, you know, that's probably not the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> yeah. You know, actually, Sam, this leads into a, a good conversation we can have because uh, on the topic of lo people losing weight and uh, waistlines, obviously, over the past year, uh, people have been buying an awful lot of leisure wear, uh, mm. yoga pants, tracksuit bottoms, et cetera, et cetera. As, of course, you know, for if you want to be on a Zoom call, uh, you know, you don't have to wear suit trousers, do you? Um, so uh, a lot of people have been just uh, wearing the most comfy, lazy stuff out there see a lot of people on the streets wearing uh, tracky bees when they would normally be wearing a more proper, uh, you know, attire. Guilty as charged. Exactly, right? So, yeah, what do you think? Because you're, uh, you're big into your leisure wear and your, well, it's like, it's weird because it's like sportswear, but it's really leisure wear. Like people, you know, obviously if you're, if you're losing weight or gaining weight, as I imagine a lot of people have during the lockdown period, you know, if you've got a nice elasticated waistband, you know, it's no problem, is it? But of course, if you're wearing, you know, you need to wear, uh, we need to wear suit trousers and things. That, that's when this becomes something of an issue. So if we are reaching the end of lockdown, you know, knock on wood, right? If we are, uh, do you think people are going to, you know, smarten up, freshen up mm. again? Or do you think we're going to be keeping a lot of these habits that we've, uh, we've built up over lockdown? That's a really because good question. Us, you know, because of course this does uh, this matters hugely to the revenues of the likes of Nike. Yeah, well that's right. So I mean, it's it's a it's a two pronged thing, right? Because if if you're right, and this is a a larger social trend where people re recognise that perhaps comfort can equal uh, style, or I mean, it's all it's always subjective. Let's let's. They tell honest. themselves this anyway. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing wrong with wearing matching tracksuit pants and jumpers, right? I mean. I, I must admit, I've been a big proponent of this, uh, not just during lockdown, but before. I've got quite a collection of Under Armour gear. I find that Under Armour in particular is uh, very suited to my physique, uh, which means broad shoulders, um, you know, big legs, um, and quite a long torso. <laughs> Basically, I'm this weird kind of body shape that only Under Armour seems to fit, or jeans with a small percentage of elastine in them to fit around my thighs, <laughs> um, it, which is very annoying. But anyway, that's a whole, I could probably talk about that for a whole podcast. But you're right, you know, I think you start to look at companies like you know, Nike, Under Armour. I mean, I know Under Armour has been sort of hit, you know, really struggled with the stock price for a, a, quite a period of time, but maybe there's a there's a bounce back story there. Um, but then also perhaps you're right and perhaps people will be looking to, to smarten up and to drop the casual wear and then when they can go out uh, to dress a little bit, like you say, a little bit more sophisticated, I suppose, in the traditional sense. And so maybe there are, there are companies out there that are, um, you know, maybe, maybe more inclined to, to seeing an opportunity in, in, in them. I mean, I'm trying to think of... What might be? Well, I mean, would you would you classify is Ted Baker kind of one of those kinds of companies that maybe could benefit from a smarter dressed world? Um, mm. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, 
maybe maybe the likes of the the yeah that's the thing you wonder if the luxury brands are kind of fully hedged here because they yeah. you know they just do a style every season and they can easily switch to something like um well, they can do like wear. expensive yeah leisure wear like you say yeah yeah hey sam what what do you call a girl in glasgow wearing a white tracksuit oh i don't know but i'm going i'm looking forward to the answer to this a bride <laughs> 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 so apologies I, I, to anyone from glasgow although i don't think Bo boaz is going to apologize at all for that <laughs> uh, yeah i i uh, i will not apologize i'm afraid no not even once we should call this episode the brides of glasgow because i'm guessing you know if sam is if sam is right i mean we're going to see a lot more uh, a lot more people wearing white track suits out there because uh, slovenliness is apparently style but you know uh, we can we can sort of uh, we can swap slightly from this sam you were saying about your uh, your unique proportions where you know you find it hard to find clothes that really fit you pretty well i'm similarly um i'm similarly uh, challenged shall we say i'm very tall and uh you know it's hard to find you know trousers that are you know, the right you know right length size etc etc uh, and you know when you're when you're talking about having a long torso and things like that it does you, you do seem to be uh, sort of making making a reference to uh, the kind of gorilla proportions right and of course, Wall Street Bets has been adopting thousands of gorillas I now. Saw that, uh, yeah. In, in sort of uh, in tribute to the whole uh, slang of aping into a stock, where you just <laughs> you buy at the market price and uh, and you you enter the biggest number that you can. It does seem like um, Wall Street Bets with the uh, you know with the GameStop, the continuing GameStop saga, uh, you know, it's definitely not going anywhere. Um, I wonder where this is leading. Have you got any ideas? You know, so I was thinking when I, I read this story to, today, it might have been, uh, I think. And I think they've, they've adopted something like three and a half thousand gorillas um, to, to help with the conservation of, of gorilla populations. Um, this, this whole thing, regardless of how it plays out, hopefully, hopefully it plays out for the better. And all, everyone that's aping in to the likes of GameStop makes a truck ton of money from it. I genuinely hope that they do um, because it's, it's quite possible that they're the, they're the sorts of people that will be the saviors of our world, that, that will put money properly back into conservation and into, um, uh, into the, 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 I guess, the important issues of the day that, that a lot of people tend to, tend to focus on, like climate change and protecting the environment and, you know, those things that are important, important things like, you know, getting rid of rubbish from the seas and things like that, which are unbelievably important to do, but are always just disgustingly underfunded. Um, maybe we start to see some actual proper, you know, movement in some of those spaces. And I, I just found it fascinating that, that they've, they've mobilized themselves as this community that is can can move markets but can also then make um real world impact from from that as well and it what it what it sort of says to me is we need to be very 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 much more conscious in the market uh you know which is what we what we look at every day about the power of crowds and the power of communities that get behind something with a great deal of passion uh, and 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 gusto, I suppose. Yeah, it does. It is an interesting spectacle where you've got this. Um, it's almost like a decentralized pressure group of some mm. degree, where they can really push around 
uh, asset prices uh, in a in a in a in, in a way that is kind of dangerous, well, is dangerous, and it, which risks the actual community itself to getting uh, attacked because they are openly trying to manipulate stocks, etc. Uh, but at the same time, can affect some kind of uh, social change. And is that Wall Street bets is interestingly one of those communities where, which are, where I can see it sticking around for a while. Like you can imagine all the people who've now adopted a gorilla, or uh, you know, one of these, uh, or you know, because this won't, this will just be the first. Yeah, exactly. many of the other kind of social social causes they'll go for you can imagine where people are, you know people are going to be you know posting updates about their gorilla you know and all you know how it's getting on and whatever and they're going to get loads in, of in all seriousness i would expect that you'll probably end up seeing a whole bunch more money directed towards um uh, uh um, like non-for-profits around autism and things like that as well because that you know they they very much sort of play on that whole autist thing um, yes. A lot of them proclaim to be, um, you know, have autism and, and many of them probably do. And, and I would expect to see that then you'd, you'd end up with, again, like you say, social causes, things like um, funding for, for autism centers and things like that as well. Mm. You know, one of the uh, major, well, kind of the main thrust of the book, The Fourth Turning, which uh, a lot of people uh, read, you know, a lot of um, well, a lot of influential people have read and believe that this is the, you know, this is a blueprint for the future. You know, history runs in cycles where uh, cycles of four generations, uh, because after a fourth generation, none of the new, like the none of the new generation remembers uh, the errors of the fourth generation before them, and you know, because all the errors of the past get repeated and things like that. And the main thrust of uh, the fourth uh, four turning is that the millennial generation is going to be the generation that is uh, sort of rebuilds the world and its image in the aftermath of the crisis that's going to take place really probably this decade uh, at this point. Uh, so it'll be interesting. I think what you see with Wall Street Bets, because it is such a millennial dominated community, I wonder if um, I wonder if what goes on there with the manner in which it's organized and the kind of the, the way they express themselves after getting success is maybe a prototype for what you're going to see a lot more of in a lot more places, mm. different communities, different organizations, maybe even institutions when they're run by millennials. I wonder if what you see with Wall Street Bets is something we're going to see a lot more of in the future, just because with every day that passes, uh, you know, a millennial becomes of voting age, ultimately becomes uh, eligible to work full time, etc. I think that I think we might see more of I think this might be an indicator of what's to come with that. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I, I'll, in fact, that's exactly what I would expect. It is. It's a it's a a, a, a small crystal ball as to what. Uh, the important things will be for the, that generation uh, over, like you say, over the next decade, as they sort of go from being uh, entering into adulthood into, you know, reaching their sort of productive, um, not productive peaks, but starting to move up towards that productive peak uh, that, you know, that you sort of hit into your mid thirties to late forties. So, you know, they'll be shifting towards that at a great rate of knots. And yeah, maybe you're right. And, and you know, when some of them inevitably get uber rich, you know, I mean, like, so Elon Musk is a, is almost like a, a, a weird sort of front runner of, of that as well. It's like, here's this guy who's a massive nerd, um, you know, did really well in terms of being one of the, basically one of the PayPal mafia that made a shit ton of cash out of that. Um, and then has gone on to, you know, to have, 
arguably probably what is the most significant impact on the world uh, outside of probably Jeff Bezos with Amazon, I would say. Um, and that's, that's probably again, a, a bit, I mean, again, people like Elon Musk and Bezos are, are somewhat outliers, but you know, they're the kinds of prototypes for what the next, um, you know, generation of, of, of uber rich billionaires probably tends to do. And that's refocusing on new technologies and, you know, more climate conscious um, uh, enterprise and things like that. So, you know, I expect that you probably will find some of them come out of the, the Wall Street bets uh, cohort, if you will, um, or, 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 you know, things sort of surrounding that or attached to that. Hmm. Now we should get on to our uh, bullish bearish segment. I am aware we have uh, we have had a little uh, we have had a little chin wag before we've gone around to it, and it is a segment that lasts a lasts a little while. Uh, Sam, uh, we uh, we did we did start this off last week. I went first. Uh, you go first this time. And just uh, to anybody listening who is new to our listenership, uh, the bullish bearish set segment is ultimately where we just discuss uh, something. It could be an asset, it could be a currency, it could be a behavior that we think we are that is going to do well in the future. Either we're going to see more of it, or we're going to see its value increase. Uh, and likewise, and, you know, contrary-wise, with bearish. So, uh, Sam, what are you bullish on? So, I'm bullish on decentralized finance. And the reason I'm bullish on decentralized finance is because of now we had a bit of a we had a bit of a WhatsApp back and forth earlier <clears throat> with Kit Winder uh, about the Goldman Sachs survey <laughs> from the uh, junior investment bankers who said that going through foster care was less stressful than going through Goldman Sachs as a junior banker. Um, and I'm, I'm bullish on decentralized finance because of this Goldman Sachs review for a very simple reason. And, and I think, and you kind of highlighted this, is that, you know, what, what we saw out of that Goldman Sachs, um, you know, survey, of, it was only like 13 junior bankers, really. But what it said was that, you know, everything that we already knew. So, now, everyone sort of knows that all those sorts of things about crazy long working hours, yes, they get rewarded well for it. They're under extreme pressures and, and ridiculous deadlines. And, you know, they get flogged, basically. Um, nothing there is new. Absolutely nothing about that is, is really new. It's everything we know. It's everything that we expect. And I think what that probably solidifies to me is that the world of investment banking has just not changed at all. It is, it is just reluctant to change. It is, it is opposed to change because why would you change when you are just making ridiculous amounts of money? Uh, and I think that those sorts of systems, and this actually ties back to um, what we were just talking about with the millennial crowd and things like Wall Street bets, is I think that the power that those communities start to gather uh, as we move through this decade is a genuine threat to to the likes of, of Goldman Sachs. I don't think it will necessarily kill them, but I think we'll see a lot of alternative ways of accessing capital, of raising capital, of being involved in capital that isn't kept by these big gatekeepers like Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan or Morgan Stanley. Uh, but it is, it is you know, done through decentralized networks. And so that makes me somewhat bullish on the decentralized finance side of things how's the uh how have the DeFi tokens been doing recently when it comes to the the crypto space um so i mean they've been doing quite well they've gone through this sort of period over the last month of um 
you'd almost say a, a consolidation um, where, you know, things have just sort of calmed down. Development has, you know, continued at a frantic pace, but the, the price action in their tokens is somewhat subdued, um, which, is, which is for a very good reason, which actually will lead onto my, my bearish segment, which I'll cover shortly. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, look, the, it, it's been a period of consolidation, but the, the thing is, is, as we know, is when things go quiet uh, in crypto, uh, the development and innovation doesn't stop. Uh, and in DeFi, the speed at which it's happening is just insanely fast. It's just crazy to see and really exciting at the same time. Yeah, it does. Uh, we have had, uh, we've had quite a few discussions on DeFi back in the day. I mean, well, I say back in the day, I mean, it was just mm -hmm. a few months ago, but as you say, the, uh, you know, the space moves so fast. I remember we uh, would have been probably our, one of our episodes in, let's see. Yeah. It would have been in a, in sort of in the twenties, in the twenties episode when I was in Sweden um yeah where i was saying the you know in in the next alt season it's going to be it's going to be the DeFi tokens who do the best it'll be interesting i like alt season doesn't still doesn't seem to have realized or manifest itself in the same way that it did during that 2017 cycle so maybe we have yet to see the alt season um but yeah I, it will be interesting to see how it all how it all plays out and how DeFi sort of forms the forms a part of that uh, for my my bullish section this week, or I would like to, uh, I would say I am very bullish on Robin Hood. No. However, I am not referring to the trading platform, uh, uh -huh. which has become incredibly popular in the US and which sadly <laughs> will not be making its way to, to the UK. I'm actually referring to a new design that's come out of the Royal Mint. Uh, they've, uh, released a, um, they've released a new bullion coin, which has an image of Robin wow. Hood on the front wow. of it. Uh, incredibly, you know, I think it's pretty nuts that they've taken this long before they've actually made a bullion coin which has Robin Hood on it. So it's a troy ounce of gold. Uh, you know, I think it's uh, four nines pure, so 99.99, 24 carat, etc. Uh, it's a very nice design. You've got Robin Hood on the front who's uh, uh, kneeling on a tree branch and, of course, with his bow and he's uh, about to go wreck somebody uh, who is off camera. You see, you know, this beautiful engraving of all of the leaves around him. Um, and it's, you know, it's a really, really fine design. I think, um, you know, it's, it's weird that it's taken, as I say, the Royal Mint so long to do this, considering Royal, uh, you know, Robin Hood is a, a, something of a British icon. Or certainly an English icon, but I would say mm. a, a British icon would be a fair, a fair description. And, uh, you know, the Austrian Mint, I, well, I believe it was the Austrian Mint, have already made a bullion coin with Robin Hood on it. Just strange when you think of uh, you know it's not really Central Europe that you would uh, you know you would associate Robin Hood with, but apparently there is a castle out there where Robin Hood is meant to have uh, stowed away for a little while, and that might explain why uh, the Central Europeans have beaten us to the punch on this. But it is something of a you know cultural appropriation when you find that uh, other countries uh, in Europe are doing, it. and of course you know Robin Hood in the States is the is the uh, is is probably what we we've spoken most about. In, yeah. that's related to Robin Hood on this podcast. You know, these aren't English or British companies, and yet uh, here they are taking taking uh, such an iconic folk figure and using it for their own for their own gain. So I'm bullish on Robin Hood because I think this coin is going to do really well, uh, and I really hope. Uh, but I do believe at the same time that the Royal Mint will make uh, this a yearly thing, where they shall release a new. Uh, design of the Robin Hood but coin every single year. I really hope they're going to do that, but I think they would do that. I think it would make for a uh, a very successful issue uh, for them. Did, um, yeah, did my... they have any? Did the, what was their sort of motivations be behind doing it now? Do you know? 
Yeah, see, that's the thing. Uh, that, that's the thing. So I think one I of the things... I find the timing that, interesting. That's all. Exactly. Uh, I, find, I think it's kind of... Um, I, I, think, I think it's suspect. I think, I think a lot of it is the, all of the hype around Robinhood, the trading platform and the Royal Mint trying to get into the investing space in a big way. So, uh, you know, they, they want to be... They've launched their RMAU ETF. Uh, well, it's an ETC, technically speaking, but it's effectively a gold ETF. Uh, and at the same time, they, they of course, uh, allow for people to uh, store physical bullion inside their vaults on a private basis as well. So uh, I think this is part of their broader move into the investment space. They've seen Robinhood be such uh, now, you know, so popular in the, in the investing space last year, just as a name. And I think they, they're then sort of trying to piggyback on that. Uh, maybe even with uh, maybe even with things like Google search optimization, they just want the, mm -hmm. the words Robin Hood and Royal Mint associated with each other. So I wonder if you'll see like um, Google ads for the Royal Mint with the Robin Hood coin at the top of a search for Robin Hood, the trading app. Yeah, yeah. I maybe maybe they were even after that. That might be the whole reason they've done this. I would not be surprised. Um, Is it I a limited run as well? Say again, sorry. Is it a limited run of the of those coins? Uh, I believe it is a limited mintage. I need to double check, but I do think they have put a cap on the number of these. Um, but you know, when they when they, you know, I think they will make more of them in the future. I I, yeah. I think this will be a success, and they'll 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 do a new edition. And it'd be really cool if every year they made just like with the Britannia, they do a new Britannia design. It'd be very cool if they did a new Robin Hood design because they I just just work their way through. Um, they just work their way through Robin Hood's band of merry men. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. It'd be a great series. Uh, so if anyone is anyone, anyone in Wales at the Royal Mint who is listening to this podcast, you know, please, uh, you know, please take this on board. I know I'd be a sucker for buying a new, a new gold Robin Hood coin every year. So uh, please do it. But Sam, yeah, but what are you was, bearish on? I was just going to add to that as like, could you imagine uh, being one of the people that stores your physical gold collection at the Royal Mint vaults? I mean, how baller you'd feel doing that. I felt, I felt pretty baller putting my, um, crypto hardware devices in a um, safety deposit box fault um, not too long ago. And um, I felt pretty baller about that, but going to the actual Royal Mint to store physical gold, that must, you know, you must, you must walk in there with a bit of swag, I reckon. Oh, big time. Um, yeah. I wonder if they've got, they, presumably they must have armed guards there. Like those guys must have guns, but I would imagine they wouldn't because Royal Mint's a private company um, officially. I wonder, yeah, well, you can commission armed guards if you're a private company in the UK, right? I assume so. I mean, yeah, you, you, oh, most, yeah. like most, most real quality vaults have everything from, you know, biometric authentication and different levels of security. Some have got, you know, armed guards as well. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me with something like the, the Royal, Royal, the Royal Mint vaults. Yeah, you'd think there'd be some sort of 24 hour physical security on top of, all the automated security they have as well. Mm, yeah. I, uh, you know, funny, funny side note, you know, once upon a time, many years ago, I actually applied for a job at the Royal Mint. Uh, Cause I was, uh, you know, it was when I was, um, you know, I'd, I'd got the gold bug, you know, I was very, uh, very interested in gold bullion, things like that. Um, and I did apply for a job. It would have been out in Wales as well, you know, way out in there in their headquarters where they've got the, the vault. Oh. I think it's a turn off off, uh, off the motorway, a real nice isolated kind of area, except for, you know, that access from the, from the motorway. But, you know, they didn't, didn't give me the job. So here I am. Uh, and instead, oh. I'm just trying to, trying to convince them to change their product line via a podcast. <laughs> They're lost. They're lost. <laughs> but, so, 
Actually, uh, so you know what? That 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 does lead pretty well into my uh, bearish um, segment because I was I was also thinking while you were talking about that if if they were I was going to ask if they'd um, issued an NFT along with uh, the the coin <laughs> that you've got so that you would have a physical and a digital representation of of each of the gold coins. But I, I, I think yeah. I'm pretty confident in assuming they didn't issue an NFT with that. Oh yeah, I think they're I think they're behind the times on that. Yeah, so that actually leads, as I said, to my bearish uh, part of, of of things this week, and I'm bearish not on NFTs, but I'm bearish on NFT platforms. Now, that's it's important to to differentiate between the two because the idea of NFTs and what they represent and can represent, I think, is a very powerful. And it's something that we will see a lot more of over the next few decades, really, to be honest. Um, but the NFT platforms that a lot of the NFTs exist on, I am bearish about. And it's because there is a lot of hype around NFTs. For example, this week, an artist based out of Brooklyn uh, who had been doing audio recordings for the last year of his farts during lockdown has uh, has has minted an NFT with all the audio of his farts over the last year. And the current highest bid for that was about, I think it was 0.2 of an Ethereum uh, token, which represents about three, it was almost 400 US dollars uh, that somebody was prepared to pay for an NFT of some bloke's farts over the last year. Now, I don't care what anyone says, but that is absolute signs of a frothy peaking market. And I am absolutely convinced that NFT artwork is an absolute frothy peaky market. I'm not saying it's a bubble because there are plenty of, you know, significant pieces of art that are done, digital art that are done as NFTs that have real value attached to them. I have no doubt, but there is so much shit out there that is selling for money that is just ridiculous that people it is just that it is a pool of a lot of money that is being thrown like shit on a wall like monkeys chucking shit on the wall of their cage at the zoo um and it's and it's 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 ridiculous and so then all of these platforms that are saying that they're you know an nft minting platform or hosting nft auctions and sales and they're issuing their own tokens as part of the platform and they're listing and they're going up like a hundred percent in the in 24 hours or a few hundred percent in like a few days that is extremely reminiscent of everything that we saw in 2017 and most of them um so what there's a few things going around online at the moment as well about a lot of these nfts um are effectively tied to the servers that the platforms are held on. So if the platform disappears or fails to continue or fails just completely, a lot of these NFTs go down with it. It's not like you can just pick up your NFT and, and go somewhere else. They're stored on the servers. So the issues of where an NFT is actually stored is now becoming a really important thing because if you've just paid hundred thousand dollars worth of crypto for an nft that's on a platform uh an nft platform that fails uh then you've just pissed a hundred thousand dollars away um for a piece of art that you can't access ever again like Um, oh like the the whole 
I, I agree. Uh, yeah, I agree with everything you've said there, Sam. I think, I do, in fact, I think it's fair to call it a bubble from, I th from what we've seen. Uh, they, I'm, I don't think calling it a bubble detracts from the fact that there are uh, valuable pieces of art that have been created as NFTs. I don't think, I, I, I don't think uh, it, calling it a bubble detracts from that because every bubble is built on something that is valuable. That's, right? That's, That's the, where it's all born. Um, mm. And when we were talking earlier about sort of the um, whether or not we get alt season and things like that, it does seem like the ICO boom of 2017 is being echoed with the NFT boom this time around. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you're talking about that bloke trying to you know, monetize his, uh, his bodily <laughs> emissions as NFTs. Uh, it kind of relates to our slovenliness to style conversation earlier. It's a descent uh, yeah, it into idiocracy. Seem, yeah, it does. Uh, it just seems absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, absurd as it is obscene. I suppose. <laughs> I think. Yeah, but it does defeat the like that 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 thing with an NFT platform. I mean, it simply defeats the entire point of the entire idea. Yes, it's like you know buying Bitcoin with but buying it through PayPal. Like, imagine if people yes. could only buy Bitcoin through PayPal, where they couldn't withdraw the Bitcoin, so it was never theirs. Imagine if you could only buy gold, but the gold was never in your possession. It was always uh, you know, somebody else who was looking after it. It was always an ETF or uh, you know, held and, uh, and um, protected by a counterparty. It wouldn't make any sense. Uh, I agree. Yeah, I do agree with that. Uh, but yeah, I, th I guess it's just a sign of the times. I mean, it's just a sign of how far the NFT boom has gone that you get these platforms, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it is. It's... it's the, the amount that I've seen come to, to market that didn't exist, you know, two months ago is exactly what we saw in 2017. And I think, I mean, I think it is. And, and I think what, what the difference is between 2017 and now is that 2017 was an explosion of ideas and some of those have stuck and some of those have gone on to become quite thriving networks and, and arguably some have got great, great potential and have continued to build and develop and it's, it's it's sort of contributed to how we start to see things now like different kinds of blockchains for for enterprise or for security or for privacy and and there's some real world use cases with some of them and, and they're still technically i suppose experimental phase and developmental but we've also seen now as we were saying sort of things like decentralized finance and and ideas and and, and experiments around how that could possibly um work and occur and all those things are still really sort of just grinding away and then you've got this sort of third thing which is the nfts that are coming and going boom and nfts in gaming and there's a big part of a big aspect of it is around the gaming community which is still a very important and thriving and growing uh industry on its own you know in gaming and blockchain based gaming and how you can integrate blockchain um you know uh, things that are scarce if for in-game rewards and virtual worlds. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things that intertwine and mix into this idea. Um, but you have to also just question the value of things. And like we've said before, I think we said it last week, scarcity does not equal value automatically. Um, but yeah, I think, I think a lot of these platforms and the way that they're set up uh, are destined to fail and that will take a lot of the NFTs that exist on them with them and hence a lot of the value. Um, and I mean, like the art world itself is, is, is peaky and droppy and, you know, the value of, of art is always subjective and goes up and down and is only, only really ever valued at what somebody believes it to be worth. 
which is arguably the same thing for every fucking asset on earth. Um, but yeah, I just think it's in this, it's in this phase, particularly around NFT artwork or what, what's determined or to see or perceived to be artwork at the moment or collectibles that aren't all that rare or all that collectible. Um, you know, it's, for instance, um, I've got probably three or four thick, large books of NBA uh, trading cards collected through the 80s and 90s. Um, and at the time, you're like, ah, oh, I bet you these are worth something. I take these to a collector's shop and like put them on their thing and go, ta-da, look at my collection. I bet it's worth thousands. And they'll look at it and go, no, it's worth 10 bucks at best. Um, but at the time when, you know, trading, you know, upper deck and, and uh, top deck and Fleur and all those sorts of trading cards back in the 80s and 90s, it's like everything seemed like it was valuable until you realize that it's not. And I think it's a very similar thing that we'll see with the NFT space. Yeah, the CryptoPunk series of NFTs in particular, which seems to have been yeah. almost uh, thought of as the, the creme de la creme of NFTs. Uh, yeah, I can see how they have managed to accrue the incredible values that they get in the bidding for them. I mean, for those listening, they're effectively 8-bit you know, little cartoon images. I mean, they are very, very, very simple. Um, very reminiscent almost of 1980s video games, things like, you know, sort of arcade stuff. Mm. Uh, and it's just a mugshot of a supposed punk, right? Um, and these things, you know, they trade in the Ethereum auctions for huge, huge sums of money, hundreds of thousands, I believe, or even more than that. And uh, I can kind of see that they've got this cult following. Remember, we are thinking of, you know, this is a, uh, a sort of breed of asset that is native to the internet. So it's almost like, imagine internet artwork. It's not quite the same as normal artwork. It doesn't really play by the same rules. And, and that got, has existed for a number of years. That didn't just come in the last few months. That, those yes, were sort of like yeah, exactly. early movers in this space. Right, right. So it's, it's, it has a sort of prestige of coming yeah, from history like old, yeah, it's of old, old internet, um, you know, references there. It's hard, hard to come up with a, a proper metaphor for it, but it has its own kind of rules. At the same time, however, you know, it's got, so these things are seen as, you know, great, uh, you know, if you were, if you were to have a digital museum, right, this would be the kind of thing you'd have on the wall and be like, yeah. you know, this is, this is, you know, the internet. The, the museum of the internet, this is the kind of thing that you'd, you'd want to have on the wall if you were trying to be uh, you know, a major collector, if you wanted it's to impress. Like, it's like they represent not just the, it's, it's, it's the art, it's the, like, the, the image itself isn't really representative with those of the, of the significance, I think, of when they came out, why they came out, and then being such an early mover in, in, in that space. And like you say, a re representation of the, of the internet in all its follies, um, that's significant in itself, which gives them an, an element of value, I think, like you say. Yeah. Uh, and again, that, that value is very, very subjective. Uh, yes. So you can see why people who are, the, there is a great phrase uh, that is, I've only encountered relatively recently, probably over, uh, especially over lockdown as well. I, I, just before uh, you continue, sorry to cut you off, but I will add when they over. first came out and I looked at them and I was like, as if I would pay anything for this fucking piece of shit. This is an eight bit face. Are you kidding me? 
And I was like, no, hard, hard pass. Don't I look like no. Yeah, well, no, yeah. See, the, the, so this comes to the second side of what I'm, what, what I'm talking about. So, uh, you know, we just spent, you know, a little bit of time discussing why these things have sort of prestigious value to be able to own one and say this is mine, right? For your, if you're, um, yeah, there's this phrase that has been uh, that I've only encountered over the last maybe 18 months, uh, which I think is very applicable to the kind of person who would really treasure something like this. And the phrase is to describe somebody as extremely online, mm. right? If you are extremely online, right, you get most of your cultural, uh, you know, facets from things that you've browsed on the internet. You're a part of big, uh, you know, a lot of internet communities. You take, you know, jokes, phrases, slang at, from internet communities and you use them in real life. Right, you're you're extremely online. Uh, you mean if you're IRL. very well, <laughs> right? Exactly. Right. If you if you if you if you but imagine if you're talking like I mean, we've been talking about aping into stocks, right? It's like people who, who say that unironically. You know, they're actually yeah. in or using words like uh, you know aping into stuff or st you know, well stonks. I mean, you Sam are are, uh, are keen on, on using that term, but the. Uh, you know, if you're extremely online, and imagine if you were extremely online, but you're also extremely wealthy as well. Yes. You can imagine why you would want to own that NFT. It is people who are extremely online who want to pay those kind of sums for a crypto punk and to be able to say, you know, this is mine. This is my image, right? Um, and so I, I can see how they've accrued that value. At the same time, as you say, it is an eight-bit image of a face. <laughs> yeah. It is absolutely nothing. There is no, absolutely no, like, technical mastery whatsoever. Like, contemporary art, I hate anyway, right? Yeah. But this stuff is just, I mean, it's almost like, you know, the internet version of contemporary art. The fact that we're bidding for it in this crazy way. It, there really is no value to this image, other than the fact that it is associated with deep internet culture, ultimately. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's hard with art. I mean, I'm no art expert. And I'm, I, I, like I said, I think I've said it before. I, if anybody listening is a genuine art critic or, or knows a lot about the art world and how to, to attach value to art, I would love to know your views on, on some of these pieces that are attracting enormous valuations as to whether artistically there's just there, there is something there or if it is just an absolute crock of shit i would love to speak to somebody about that the thing is that's a pretty much a rhetorical question though sam isn't it i mean it, it is it, is the value this is art this right stuff? this is art though i mean what is what is what is but again it's any asset any asset any asset what's valuable to one person isn't it's so subjective so it's hard to say that it's not worth something when to somebody it's the most important thing on earth. I almost, I almost bring it back to, to, to property because like with property, your, the house that you buy is worth what you pay for it because that's what you pay for it. You then spend time in it and you, uh, you have memories in it and you create a life in it and it very quickly goes from being a house to being a home and when it's a home you always believe it is far far more valuable than it will ever be to anybody else 
and it will always be more valuable to you than somebody else who wants to buy it. And the only time that you really know the monetary value of it is when somebody else is prepared to buy it. And it's only valued then at what you are prepared to sell it at to that person that they're prepared to buy. You will always sell a house that has become your home for less than you think it is worth. I guarantee you, nobody has ever sold a home and said, you know what? I fucking rinsed them. <laughs> nobody in the history, I think, has ever said that. It's always like, I wish I'd have got more for it because you can't put a price on some of the intangible things that come with a home. And it's a bit like that with art is that you can't, the, the, the great pieces uh, have an intangible quality to them, whether it's a history or a story or an example of how they came about. Um, to some, to one person, that might be the most boring, ridiculous thing in the world, but to somebody else, it's the, it's the most special thing in the world and they'll pay $50 million for a piece of art that somebody else looks at and goes, it's a fucking vase with flowers in it. I mean, whoop-de-woo. So it's, it's just crazy. And it's what fascinates me, not just about art, but about all assets in the world is just how that we, how we perceive value and how we perceive value to particular assets and not other things. How some people think that cars are more valuable than watches or people think that watches are more valuable than art or people think that art is more valuable than a house. It's all subjective, I think, isn't it? Even gold and Bitcoin, really. Yeah, I think I get the gist of what you're saying. I get the gist of what you're going for. I mean, when we talk about, you know, the vase with flowers, I'm assuming you're uh, sort of referring to the, the Van Gogh, uh, you know, the, of his classic. I mean, there, I mean, with that, with that painting, uh, you know, he exhibits a technical skill that is, uh, you know, nobody has really been able to replicate uh, consistently. Uh, so with that, you are seeing this is like a talent. I mean, you know, it's almost like, you know, the life of a sportsman who is just exceptional at what he does. You know, the sportsman yeah. himself yeah. gains a huge value for his team, etc. With that, with a painting like that, it's like you can sort of encapsulate that into an item. You know, so once the sportsman's dead, he's dead, right? Mm -hmm. But where, you know, his work, um, you can't be encapsulated other than as a victory on a, on a, you know, on, on his team's historical but now score. It, but now it with, can though, uh, right? So that's, and I think that's, yeah, yeah. that's sort of like with the, with an NFT, right? Uh, if, you know, if there were, if there was an NFT, uh, a one of a kind, like exclusive footage of Kobe Bryant in training, doing a dunk that no one had ever seen before that was minted into an NFT showing his physical prowess that, that no one else has ever seen. And the only way you could ever see that was through this particular NFT and the, the video file attached to it. Then arguably that would be of significant cultural value as well. I would, I would suppose. I think for it to, for it to be, for there to be a comparison with something like this, I think it would need to be, imagine if, there was a cricket game between, you know, England, Australia that nobody ever saw. There was no audience or witness to. And the only way you could see it was by buying this one asset. Only people who bought and own this are allowed to see it. It is where you could get a comparison to like, there's this work of art that, you know, that, you know, Van Gogh's flowers that, um, you know, exhibits technical skill that you really can't see in any other in any other painting, but you know I do see where you're going with it. Um, it just comes to you know it comes to, the subjectivity is one thing, but you know Van Gogh's flowers there's a technical skill there. 
mm. with something like a you know crypto punk it's all it's all about um prestige it's all sure. about references it's all about a reference to being part of a club ultimately um but yeah, sam so we haven't rated our first beer yet what's yeah, it gonna be uh i just want to add one more thing is that you're right with something like CryptoPunk, the, the technical capability. It's probably unfair to put that on the same level as something like a Van Gogh. When you look at the Beeple collage, though, uh, that, that sold for, you know, 60 million, again, you wonder, there's an element of technical skill to that, but it's not on the same unique level that something like a Van Gogh or a Renoir or, or a Rembrandt or something like that would probably have. So, again, it's, it's difficult to understand and get your head around, but... I mean, that's what makes the whole thing so very interesting and exciting to talk about. But you're right. So the first beer, uh, getting, getting moving things along, is, uh, say, the Virginia beer, double free verse. I quite enjoyed that, to be honest. Um, you're right. It was, it was quite, what was the word you used before? Dense or? <laughs> um, syrupy. Syrupy, that's the one. Uh, it was, but it tasted okay. Um, I, again, it's probably, it didn't really blow my socks off. I did enjoy it but I don't think it was one of the best I've had. I'd probably give it a, just a solid B for me. Yeah, I think uh, I, I, it was a good double IPA. Um, yeah, it went down pretty well. Maybe slightly heavy, maybe slightly mm. heavy. I mean, it was 8.6. Um, I did have it very, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, slightly heavy, but no, I mean, it was, it was, it was good. Um, I I think I ha and I had it really cold as well. I think if you had that warm at all, it would be way too heavy. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, I think it's everything was all good. Um, it is good to be drinking, you know, two beers today that does not involve the Doppelbock. Um, Sam, we have, I, you know, we need to be giving away these these bottles of Doppelbock that I've got to an unwitting member of our of our audience. Uh, but we shall come up with a riddle or something to to do for that next week. Yeah. Uh, for this for this beer though, I think I would give that that uh, the Virginian beer a. Uh, I think I'll give it a B. Yeah, I think I'll I'll echo your sentiments. I think B is fine. I, I think plus or minus. Yeah, I don't think it even. Yeah, I don't think it needs to get that that complicated. I think a B is a, a fine fine metric for it. Now the second beer that we are on is Resonance. That is by Demur Slutel, Beer Engineers, apparently. And this is a coconut and chocolate stout. Uh, now, uh, we've got, it's an 8% or 330 mil can. Uh, it's a very dark black label with a sort of a wave motif on it, 3D wave motif on it. Uh, it's got lactose in it, which of course I hate, but, um, you know, it doesn't taste too, you know, I'm not really tasting much of that lactose. But it doesn't taste great to me. Uh, it, it, you do get that that coconut so far, Sam. What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean the coconut really you 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 taste that a lot. <laughs> it's, it's literally when I opened it, poured it out. That was the first thing that really struck me was that it was very very coconutty, uh, and you can just tell. I mean, it, it, they they use coconut and, and cacao nibs in the actual beer. Um, so it's going to definitely have a lot of that. I mean, it is black. It is literally like a, a, a glass of um, flat, you know, Coca-Cola. It's that dark. It's, um, I, I quite like beers. I like stouts like this that have got a lot of taste. 
uh, and a lot of different flavors and varieties to them. But it is, it's quite heavy, <laughs> I must admit. And I think I'm going to struggle to, uh, like, I think I'll drink this one, but I, I think I would struggle. And again, this is only a 330 mil can. I think I would struggle to get through two of these. Yeah, I would echo, I would echo your sentiments there. Uh, getting through two of these would be, yeah, would be quite a, a, a challenge because it's very, <laughs> it's very rich. Uh, and rich, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah rich as hell. Um, but yeah, it's it's very coconutty. I think it's got its place. I think it's got its place. Um, for the bearish segment on my side, uh, I would say I am bearish on uh, VAT on silver bullion. Ooh. Now, VAT on silver is something that has been, uh, yeah, it's a real bummer in this country. Actually, uh, the UK is. It's not unique in this regard, but um, gold is not is not VATable if it provided that it's investment grade. So provided it's at least twenty two carat, you're fine. Um, however, silver does not get this exemption, uh, and hmm. despite it being despite the Royal Mint for that matter, you know, minting uh, coins that have a face value that are technically uh, you know legal tender in the England at least. Uh, and with you know a face value which would make its currency to some degree, uh, th those coins still get that VAT charge on it. Now it used to be uh, prior to December last year, uh, prior to Brexit, uh, there used to be a loophole that you could use in the UK, where uh, in EU nations it is possible to buy uh, goods from other countries at the VAT rate that is applicable in those countries and not to pay it in the UK. So you can buy it from there and then ship it over and not have to pay uh, UK VAT. Instead, you pay another country's VAT. And there are certain nations in the EU which do not charge a 20% VAT on silver bullion. They charge a very, very low rate to the point where, you know, it's uh, really quite, uh, you know, quite advantageous to buy at that rate. Uh, Estonia being one of these one of these countries, so people who wanted to buy silver bullion in the UK would then effectively just you know buy their buy their silver bullion from Estonia, ship it over, pay the pay the fee, and uh, be able to get you know VAT free silver in in effect. Now since we've left, uh, that no longer applies. Uh, no. However, this does at the same time free up uh, the UK in all manner of you know regulatory practice and whatnot. I think there will be, I do, I think this will change at some point in the future. I, I'm bearish on VAT on silver. Now that loophole has been closed, I think there were the, I think we may see some MP or somebody, you know, get, you know, receive enough, enough of a push uh, from, uh, from the public that that, that that might change because you, know, you get plenty of uh, bullion providers in the UK who do, you know, do charge the VAT. Mm. Uh, and of course, who would want that to change because they'd be able to do an awful lot more business were that to change. However, there's not been enough sort of support behind those guys because, you know, everyone's been able at the same time to just buy the stuff from the likes of Estonia. So they've not really had as much support as they would have had otherwise. Now that nobody really has any choice but to pay VAT, I think that may change in the future. Uh, this is you know, very hopeful on my side because I do love buying silver. However, I, I think I think things might change in the future. I think they might. I I must admit it. I I struggle to comprehend why they would charge VAT on it. Yeah, it's um, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because 
if you're if you're charging VAT on it, would it, imagine if you you know imagine if you were charged VAT when you bought something like a stock, it would be you know it's yeah absurd. exactly right. Yeah, maybe the fact that people like having um, silverware, uh, so sterling silver, you you know sterling silver is perfectly usable in uh, cutlery and you know belt buckles, jewelry, things like that. You would pay VAT. Uh, you know, you would pay VAT on all of those things. Mm. So if they made investment grade silver, not VAT mm. free, then yeah. that would mean that lots of industries would start maybe even avoiding VAT by making their products. And so maybe that's, maybe that's what's doing it. Uh, you know, at the same time, I would still say you should make it VAT free anyway, because it's good to have your citizens owning things that are effectively inflation proof. I think that's a, you know, it's a of great benefit to have your your citizens uh, be able to preserve their you know preserve their wealth in that way, uh, but it does seem an incredibly archaic uh, and mm. antiquated uh, law. So I do hope it changes in the future. In the future, however, you know you never can uh, you know what is it Hanlon's Hanlon's razor never uh, never attribute to malice what can be uh, explained by incompetence. <laughs> so uh, we'll we'll have to see how how that turns out. Uh, but Sam, in terms of, uh, you know, we are sort of winding to the end of, uh, of episode, well, what are we on, 30, 38 now? 38. So, yeah. yeah. What, uh, how, how, should, how do you think we should sum this up before we do our final rating? Um, well, let's, let's talk about this beer because I'm struggling now with it. After <laughs> it is dense. After saying I'd, I'd probably struggle to get through two. I'm going to say I'd probably struggle to get through one small 330 mil can. Um, I'm going to chip away at it. Um, like a good stat. It's got a bit of the coffees about it, um, as, as a lot of stouts tend to have. Um, it's definitely chocolatey, definitely strongly coconut. I just don't think it necessarily works that well in a beer. It's got gluten. It's got lactose, all the things that don't really work well with anybody these days, yeah. myself included. <laughs> it's just it's just i you know what the first smell of it i like had a smell and i was like oh yeah this is good this is gonna be good i'm gonna enjoy this I had a sip i was like oh yeah buying coconut in the face it's like a, you got beaten in the face with a coconut and then like three or four sips in i'm like oh okay this is getting harder and now i'm some staring at what remains of the can and i'm like oh do i have to um so it's getting increasingly difficult i uh in terms of rating it I mean, I'm halfway through or, or, or almost halfway through. It's not that I don't like it. It's not that I hate it. It's just that it's difficult to drink. Um, and I've had, I've had beer from um, De Merslutiel in Alkmaar in the Netherlands before, and they've had some really cracking beers. Um, and this is, this is the, if you, I think if you're a stout fan, you'd probably enjoy this, but I just don't think I'm a huge stout fan. Um, I, do, I would disagree, Sam. I don't. I, because I'm I'm quite a stout guy. Um, I don't think, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure this is a, a total winner for me, Mr. Mark. Um, yeah, a, a resonance is not resonating well with us. I don't think. No, well, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna give this a I'm just gonna give this an A. I think it's like I said, it's not horrible. It's just difficult. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's an A for me from the resonance. Mm. I think I'll give this one a double A. No, I um maybe maybe post fast. I'm slightly more uh, slightly less merciful than I normally would be, but I'm not I'm not taking prisoners of this one. It's just not a very good beer. Uh, so you know to begin with, like uh, as you say, I think 
it does it does smell and um the first taste that you have is like mm. oh you know they've achieved something quite special with this this mm. is you know this is very chocolatey this is very coconut mm. um but when you actually have it this is not an enjoyable beer to consume uh, <laughs> I, I wonder if not, it would change I would if, recommend. if i had a full-size bounty chocolate bar sat next to me whether or not i would enjoy this more or less yeah, well, I think I think you'd probably want the opposite instead, right? Yeah, I think you'd want something like something salty and savory to kind of offset like a pretzel. This yeah, or like like just some really salty corn chips with spice mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, right. Yeah, if you were, if you were having something that was spicy that was spicier than you could deal with, this would definitely dull the spice, right? If you're if you're like, I'm dying for some milk right now, somebody put me out of my misery. If you just give them this thing, like they'll drink it like it's no tomorrow. That is like a fire blanket for spice. <laughs> this would just put it out. A fire blanket for spice. It's like uh, what we need for the, for the market, a fire blanket for the market. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. Okay. I'll give this a double A. Um, okay. But yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think that does. I think that's a good place to uh, to end uh, this episode, Sam. Um, we shall be back again, of course, with episode thirty nine. Any closing comments, or uh, uh, shall we wrap up? Uh, look, it's yeah, it's a, it's been another one of those interesting weeks in both the crypto markets, which I tend to spend a lot of focus on, and, and the the stock market, which I spend an equal amount of focus on. Um, there, there's a lot happening. I think volat- volatility is has not disappeared. Uh, and it's great because it gives us so much to talk about. And we've probably, we've, we've, we've spoken a bit about, uh, believe it, we've spoken about art today quite a lot, which is very unusual for us. <laughs> but the art world seems to have found its way back into the consciousness of, of investors in a strange way, um, which is fascinating because I love seeing all kinds of assets intersect and intertwine. And, and it makes for a very interesting uh, way to look at, researching investigating the markets so i'm all for it i love it i love it 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 befounds me and confuses me uh bewilders me uh and at the same time i'm just utterly fascinated by it as well so um yeah i think it's something i'm going to look more at i'd like to get some art for myself to be honest um but i don't i don't even know where to start but uh it's not going to be an nft i'll guarantee you that yeah i would um I would definitely not ask an expert, Sam. Uh, that would that would be my advice. If you're if you're after art, you should not. The last thing you should do <laughs> should, would be speaking to anybody who's been yeah. to university to study it. No, I'm uh, just going to get something that I simply, like. Exactly. So find some find find something beautiful that speaks to you. Don't yeah. don't ever don't ever let somebody else tell you. No, 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 no. You, you are you, want, are you, you saying want that, are you well. saying that studied career um, uh, arts students uh, art studies uh, uh, art appreciation people are the same as career politicians? Is that what you're alluding to? Uh, yeah. Well, actually, well, I mean, I'm I'm actually trying to weigh up in my head which one is worse, and I I would probably need to take the time before I could give you an answer, Sam. Um, but what yeah, a great I, spot I, to wind up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think. Uh, I, I, the, 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 there's been this grand proliferation of people, um, I think, yeah, and this, I think this predates me, uh, who really want to tell you what is beautiful and what isn't. 
Mm. And I, I, I very much reject that. There's a similarly with contemporary art and, you know, the old masters, uh, you know, there's a phenomenon that's gone on there, which we don't, which is sort of an, it has a lot of investment angles to it, but which, you know, we've probably spent entire other podcasts. I'm probably rambling on a little too long uh, already, but uh, something I, I found a, very interesting is uh, I did speak um, to uh, an art specialist who, you know, who's a former Goldman Sachs alumni, funnily enough, who had gone into the uh, the art uh, the art world full time because they really really liked it, and they took that investment angle, the investment side, uh, to art, and the the whole sort of um, what their business now is cataloging uh, art prices and making making indexes out of it because. Uh, the art world is so opaque that when uh, there's a failed auction, for example, mm. uh, that won't actually appear anywhere on a chart. <clears throat> the art will actually just disappear. Oh. Uh, it's uh, the the word for it in the industry is it's burnt. Uh, but the the auction will never record that that has occurred. So, or the only way you can find out that that's happened is by finding all of the old catalogs and then see the ones that don't sell, because the art industry never wants it to look like art isn't selling. So. Uh, if art doesn't sell, they just pretend it never happened. Uh, and, in, and if you look at it in that way, uh, you'll find that the old masters, you know, the, the grand technically uh, brilliant pieces of art uh, from centuries past actually have been in effectively a bear market relative to contemporary art. Mm-hmm. And so all of the grand valuations you get uh, are uh, almost entirely driven by contemporary art. In fact, that Da Vinci that uh, Mohammed bin Salman bought for, mm. what, 400 million euro or whatever, Mm. That was uh, that was only sold, and it was only went for that price because it was actually snuck into a contemporary art auction. I heard like that, the rest yeah. of the lots were all contemporary art. That was one of the ways that uh, the auction house managed to get such a high valuation for it. it was just by putting it in with all the other contemporary crap that uh, billionaires were wanting to bid over. Uh, so, and I think that sort of undervaluation for the old masters uh, is something that in, you know intrigues me very much. So I think. Um, you know, you know, we've had previous in previous podcasts. I've spoken about. You know, I feel very reluctant to sell things like Bitcoin, right? Mm. Uh, because I feel very attached to them. I've got uh, all of the investment biases uh, apply to me when it comes to when it comes to assets like Bitcoin. But something I would be uh, very happy to exchange Bitcoin for, or to sell it and then to to invest the proceeds in something else, would be fine art that uh, that really speaks to me. Because I mm. think it feels like an asset like that. Um, you know, if you find a, you know, a historical artist who has created great wonders uh, that have effectively been, you know, which, which aren't, which aren't valued so much by, uh, by the everyman today or by the, uh, the losers who study art at university, right? This is something that, uh, this is something I would be, you know, I'd, I would really want to own. But anyway, this is probably a, probably a subject for a, another entire podcast. We have rambled on for quite a while with episode 38, so I shall close it there. But uh, if you are listening to this, I hope you are having a, a very good week. I hope you have a good weekend from here on out. And well, we shall be, at, be back again in a week's time with some more beer. In the meantime, have a good one, and we'll see you then.